Hello everyone and welcome to the Volrath Feed. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef here at the Volrath Company. And I'm joined as always by our executive producer and co-host, Justin Pearson. Justin, welcome once again. Here we are. Indeed, here we are. How are you doing today, Rich? Doing all right. Uh, I'm Russian, but doing all right. Yourself? <laughs> Russian? I thought you were German. <laughs> <laughs> ba -ba -boom. How's yeah. that go? Bada bing. Yeah. However, uh, all I know is I've met my dad joke quota <laughs> for the week. <laughs> nah, just a, one of those weeks, right? Oh, uh, yeah. It's been about two weeks worth of stuff crammed into a couple of days already. Yeah, but this is a good, but this is always a good time for us, right? It's like rush up to here and then we'll get to have a little fun doing this, so. For sure. It certainly is an oasis in an otherwise chaotic work week. Right. And I just want to reach out early to everyone to remind everybody that if there's things you want us to talk about or you want to hear from the feed or suggestions or comments about the show, please reach out to us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed and let us know your thoughts. We do appreciate it and uh, try to work in those suggestions that we get into the show. And also, I would like to remind everyone to hit that subscribe button. You know, we don't want you to miss any moment with a chef or food service industry professional hit that little bell and make sure that you get all the notifications for when a new episode drops. All right, Justin. Well, we've had, you know, a lot of guests on the show that are very well known. Mm -hmm. And today I think we have another one of those guests that's at that level. If you are a foodie in Wisconsin, you will immediately recognize our guest today, Kyle Cherick, who was the well-known host for over 11 seasons on Wisconsin Foodie. If you were a foodie in Wisconsin, you were touring your channels on uh, television and you saw this show more than once, I guarantee you've been drawn in and watched the show and listened to Kyle's unique way he hosted that show. You know, he was such a, a wealth of knowledge. And it just you could tell the way he interviewed with uh, the knowledge that he would bring to the show and his guests. It was just a lot of fun to watch him over the years. So he was doing, he'd done that for over 11 years and He's moved on since then, so we'll get to hear today, hopefully, what he's got in the works and talk about some of his past experiences at the show. Yeah, I, I really enjoy how he makes topics that could, you know, maybe dive a little deep or seem otherwise unapproachable, very uh, easy to digest. Uh, <laughs> I guess my dad jokes aren't done for the day. <laughs> Moving along. And, you know, he he had the ability, He had he did have that ability, but... If you've ever listened to, he has a, I think it's like a TED talk out there. I was doing some research here for the show and he does a, I think it's a TEDx or something at UW Milwaukee where he talks about flavor. And you think about flavor, you and I would maybe be able to talk, what, 15, 20 seconds on flavor. What is flavor? We'd describe it and end of story. He has a 15 minute presentation he does talking about flavors and how it's different than taste and he really gets into it, and, and it's it's not a thing he studies up on, I don't think. I, I get the sense that this is just, like, natural interest and curiosity for him, and then he, like, locks it away in the vault. You know how things are – people have those things, right, that interest you that you don't have to study it. You read it once, and now you just know it. And, of course, we've got those other things that we have to put work into understanding and remembering. <laughs> but for him, food and the facts of food, the science of food – all those things are just like, he, he enjoys it, it's in his memory bank, and then he can just bring it out when he wants. Yeah, I, I genuinely appreciate how he's made a career out of food, 
without having to be in the kitchen. He has a wealth of knowledge, and he has a great understanding, and he's an amazing network of chefs that he knows, and that he's you know talks with. He gets inside track and trends and all these other things. So he's a very well connected person. He's just a great personality on camera and on the airwaves. Well, Justin, I think it's that time. You know, we get to this point in the show. I think we bring in our guest. And to remind everyone, once again, today we have Kyle Cherick, who is a food historian. And if you've listened to him at all, it is amazing the amount of history this man knows about food. He, uh, you might know him from his longtime position as host of Wisconsin Foodie. So without further ado, Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you. I follow in an esteemed list of voices that have casted on this pod. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you taking the time with us today. And how's things going? I mean, we've, we've been uh, trying to get this together for a while. Everything going well for you? There's some, there's some details in my personal life that kept me from being on your podcast, um, primarily new family members en route and a number of other yeah. projects that have been <laughs> enormously engrossing, uh, of which I cannot speak, but I hope you see in a streaming service very soon. Super. And uh, I will leave it at that. Um, I'm Perfect. just delighted Perfect. this was a podcast because I didn't get a haircut. <laughs> Join the <laughs> crowd. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, you know, as I said in the intro, um, the amount of information you know about food and food history and chefs and people in the industry it's not one of those things that you could say to someone, hey, I want you to learn mm. a certain thing. Mm-hmm. This kind of stuff just is in you, isn't it? You just find a, 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 a enjoyment out of researching and knowing this yeah. stuff. I mean, that's how it comes off. Yeah, no, yeah. that's. I think that's a really accurate characterization. I, um, you know, I fell into Wisconsin Foodie, which you mentioned in the intro, uh, really when the creator-producer asked me if I'd host, and I initially said no, and then I said, you know, something inside me told me yes. And the first season or two, we really kind of bumped around. And it was when I was starting, by the third season, we went off of local television and PBS picked us up and it turned into a big thing. And then we grew into a primetime show and, you know, started winning Emmys and that sort of thing. And, um, but in that early transition, when people were stopping me and asking for pictures and things like that, I realized that there's, I don't want to say greatness, but there's experiences that we pursue and then that those are sort of brought to us by the universe or higher power or God or whatever you want to call it. And, and that this was one that I should step back. I should step back, take a look at it and really step up into. And so from the very beginning, I um, well, I'm a, I'm a recovering English major who really should have been a history major. So the story behind things, <laughs> <laughs> the story of the story is really what gets me up and puts me to bed. Quite literally, um, you know, people always say, you know, do the, the, the Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. Uh, and people say, you know, if you could just do your hobby as a living, that would be a real uh, boon as far as life satisfaction. Um, uh, or another way to characterize it is what do you read in bed? Or what do you read when it's leisure reading, when you, when you no one's watching, when you just are reading because you want to read? Some people read romance or westerns or, you know, whatever it might be. I read food history, and I have for the last 15, 20 years. And the way that I would perceive um, going into an episode with Foodie was I'd get a general, not even, I'd get like a couple of notes, like a quick conversation. This is where we're going. It's what it's about, uh, that kind of thing. Nothing like a legitimate production doc. 
but I would research the average rainfall, the average income of the farmer, the um, politics of the region, the school district, the um, main employer, the everything I possibly could so that I could stand with dignity and speak to these folks from a place of respect and understanding. And all of those facts mm -hmm. are just facts, but you can weave them into history. And then when it comes to food history, I believe, and I've said this on so many public platforms, but it's still people kind of, you know, blink sometimes when they hear it. I believe after love, food is the second most powerful force in the universe. And when you mm -hmm. look at the line of the through line of food through history, um, that's that, you know, it, it's incredibly true. I mean, the reason that we're all sitting in this country talking on a podcast in the richest, most advanced country in the world is because of food. That's the reason that we have a stock market and a financial system that we have is because of food. The reason that we have the economic system that we have, capitalism, which grew out of mercantilism, is because of food and on and on and on and on and on. So um, when you reduce it and you reduce it and reduce it, as chefs like to do to get to that pure flavor, uh, when I reduce it and reduce it and reduce it and reduce it, you know, within the story, I keep coming back to food history is pretty much tied to all of us. Not only that, but tell me one human experience of uh, great sadness or extraordinary joy or anywhere on that spectrum that isn't touched in some way by food or drink. No, mm -hmm. you're right. I, it, it is. It is. It's a, I challenge it's anybody. A common denominator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I challenge anybody. And I've been. I've. I've done this in you know large talks and things like that. And my favorite was a, a corporate gig, and I'll leave the name of the company out, but probably 1,500 people, and I was doing a discussion about food and evolution and how it shaped things. And it was more of a real estate group, and so I was talking uh, really about how you know when you do your developments, please include food and beverage in part of it. And not in the typical ways, just in the first floor where you put in a cousins or something, you know, boring like that. Um, no offense to cousins, but, you know, like we can have some more interesting. <laughs> and uh, I told the story about how the Romans invented the drive through and things like that because they understood the importance of having people eating and coming and going through their cities and so forth. But anyway, I, I posited that whole tell me one thing that, you know, human experience that isn't. And one guy raised his hand and he was like, I got it, you know, real estate guy, you know, thinking and he's like, <laughs> childbirth and, and, and then this little skitter of laughter traveled through and everybody was thinking what i was thinking is like uh okay breast milk <laughs> it's not food <laughs> it's actually dude the perfect food but nah hey yeah whatever uh, good try good yeah, try yeah, yeah. However, yeah however you want to roll keep going with that good luck uh i hope you're not married don't tell your wife <laughs> yeah. yeah no you're so right food is it, 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 you're 100% right in your statement. And, um, you know, it goes way back. We know documented with spices and the spice trade mm -hmm. industry. And it was valued as, as monetary ways to, to exchange goods, right? Yeah. It was, yeah. it, it really is a powerful history. And you dive into it so deeply. And I listened to one talk you gave just on the difference between taste and flavor. And you went, uh, was that a TED talk of some sort mm -hmm. you had? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, my TEDx talk. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the the level of detail that you dive into, and again, that's just stuff you you read on your own, and you kind of bring it together in, in these talks. And it's so interesting to to hear you lay it out so clearly for people, and um, the different ways that we taste, and 
how that affects everything, well, really. You're very kind. You're very kind. And the truth <laughs> is that food is connected to memory and memory is connected to identity and place. And um, so when we, I mean, what is, when you really become, you know, warmly associated with somebody or you like somebody, and I, I, I don't know if you guys are married or you have families or partners or at, at some point in your life, when you got to know somebody, you said, I'm going to go have a drink with that guy. I'm gonna, let's have them over to dinner. We should have them over to barbecue. We should whatever. You know, when you really feel close to somebody, you, you break bread. And that goes back to all of us uh, basically in evolution, stepping forward as uh, Neanderthal and Homo sapien and that sort of thing and gathering around a fire uh, with sustenance and something that was just, you know, killed and cooked and everything tastes better once it's cooked because all the flavonoids open up, like something like 400 more on, on cooked meat. And we're around warmth and we're around safety and we look up at the night sky and we start to imagine and we have this sense of home. I mean, the Roman word, or rather the Latin word, focus, which we carry through, if I say, you know, guys, let's focus this conversation, the etymology of that, the focus was literally the fire that cooked inside the home in a Roman household. Boom. Oh. <laughs> yeah. there, wow. there you go. The focus. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, well. yeah. Yeah. Food is is a language. It's universal. Oh no question. Uh, it you, that's how when you go to a different country or a different uh, community, uh, that's how you can quickly and easily get to know somebody or a culture. Yeah. And create bonds and and just really break down a lot of those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. Bourdain and then to a much greater extent, Andrew Zimmern you know, proved that and uh, continued mm -hmm. to prove that. Andrew, who's an acquaintance, a friend, I'm going to see him in September, an event we're doing together, um, tells a great story about how that was, you know, what he pitched the, the, the cable networks back then when people watched cable um, on the concept of his show. And like, no one's going to go for that. And then he, you know, he came back with the, basically the same concept veiled under, I'm a fat guy who eats bugs in strange places. And they were like, great, love it, do it. And then he went off and made the show that he wanted to make anyway. <laughs> and and uh, it, it was brilliant. It just, yeah. it, how it morphed over the years. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that, you know, but you, you, it is a form of connection. Uh, and, and, you know, both of them proved that when you sit down in that uh, Moroccan bazaar or that, uh, you know, that Thai River hut or, or wherever you might be in the South American whatever, and you're, you're connecting over the food they're sharing with you, like, you know, that's... That's the magic right there. You're, you're immediately on a same soul level to the people that have no mm -hmm. language, no other customs yeah. in common with you, no childhood memories, except for probably breastfeeding. And then beyond that, everything else was different, right? Uh, they sure as hell didn't read Dr. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Seuss, you know, um, but it <laughs> doesn't matter. Food, food transcends. No. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't know the language, but yet you do, because when you eat... And you, they see your reaction, and and you, you're sharing that point some communication about food, yeah, right? Yeah, it's all about. Well, and you, you guys are, connection. you guys are a Vol, Volrath enterprise, and I just have to do. It's not, it's not a pitch, but I just have to say, you, it was so cool when I got to know the company years ago and did a tour because, as you probably know, you guys are have walked through your whole, you know, all your different uh, endeavors, but. Um, Volrath made the, the canteens, the water canteens for the Army and Navy in World War II, and you've got a little display in your mm -hmm. museum or whatever. And to, as a Wisconsinite, mm -hmm. to be part of 
in you know in a very ancillary way i'm from wisconsin they're wisconsin company i mean how many degrees of kevin bacon can we get here but to be in a way <laughs> part of that that i mean you can't there's 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 few items that are so iconic or were so essential to the health success and welfare of making the world free from tyranny than mm-hmm. that that canteen bottle and it was made in Wisconsin by a company that still like that is just badass like that i get goosebumps you know yeah. and it and it isn't you know cool. it isn't a it isn't a flan or it isn't a whatever it isn't you know it isn't uh le creuset or like it isn't all that julia child stuff which is great but it's like it's this simple little rudimentary thing that every one of those service people like depended upon um right and 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 you know we were the good guys at that point and we did marvelous things yeah. for the world um you, you, no. it, just to think about the stories yeah. that surround the countless stories that surround that that humble canteen. Yeah. Yeah. The life yeah. saved. Yeah, you know? it's a backstory yeah. you cannot yeah. create, even if you hired the best PR agencies in the world, they wouldn't be able to come up with something that authentic and earnest. Uh it's just right. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So a good Wisconsin company. And um, your roots are in Wisconsin, yeah. right? You born yeah, and raised. Born and, and raised. so, yeah. w- when you were young, did this passion and this interest in food uh, hit you at some point, or is that always hell been no. there? Did you? Hell no! I didn't want to be. <laughs> hell no! I am the prodigal son. I didn't want to be from Wisconsin. I grew up in Waukesha. I freaking hated it. Um, it was a this a wonderful <laughs> this is it's a wonderful life kind of you know town at the time. That wasn't my family, mm-hmm. but that was the experience at a paper route downtown. I had cousins that were uh, had grown up in farming, and I spent I was raised partially by those cousins. And then my um, my my lovely sister Lisa, older sister, married into married a farmer, a, a farming family in Maquanago. So I spent a lot of time baling hay and cutting the heads off of chickens and picking wild asparagus and milking cows and going into bigger barns. Um, you know, because at one point it was the 70s, and one of the Farms was that uh, Earl Butts, Secretary of Agriculture in 71 that Nixon pulled out of Purdue. And you know, he's famous for the go big or go or get out, go big or get out kind of agriculture that really created um, fast food nation. But uh, everything from that big kind of thing to a small enterprise where it was like 30 cows and chickens one year and let's try this. And, you know, I could probably have scaled to the top of the, the feed silo as a kid because it wasn't that big. Um, and I didn't hate every minute of that, but it certainly wasn't. I wanted to live in like New York or San Francisco and go to museums. And, and I was an inquisitive, sensitive, um, uh, idiosyncratic kid. And um, that's not, you know, there's, this wasn't the environment that appealed to me. That said, when uh, later when Foodie came around, I understood that whether I meant to or not, I had an intuitive and deeply, deeply, deeply respectful uh, nature around the folks that we would be filming and profiling. And, uh, and then in all my other production work, as I started my own production company a year or two into foodie and talking about food history and doing other projects. And, you know, like when Culver's called me for the national commercial and they wanted to talk about three Wisconsin cheeses and so forth, it's this great moment because uh, there's like, you know, 28 people from the agency that all oh, this is a big deal commercial and they're going to play it during the NBA playoffs and buy all kinds of the time on YouTube and everything and and it's me and Craig and we're going to make a burger and they're really trying to get down to the the you know the, the reduce it down to the story for this commercial 
And I was like, guys, a Culver's burger is nothing but a tavern burger. And the reason that it has the crisp on there is because you put the patty on and it sits on the, on the griddle long enough for you to tap a beer and make change and turn around and flip it. And Craig Culver was like, that's exactly what I've been trying to say for, you know, <laughs> like, you know I, I don't know how I know this stuff, but like that's that. And then with farmers and makers and those sorts of things, those were all part of me. And um, I came into food. Food had a very strong association for me, I think, as it does for everybody in memory, because I was partially raised by grandmothers and aunts relative to my family situation. So standing next to them or, you know, while they're preparing things or cutting things or so forth, I can still remember making like liverwurst with my Polish grandmother and cranking the hand cranking the thing and making it and then, um, you know, throwing dumplings in the water with my Hungarian grandmother. And those sorts of memories were not poignant to me. But later I realized that I had a very old world connection because they were both old world one came over from Hungary as a refugee in the 50s and the other one was just old world Polish so I had a, a different type of connection to food than many people did with micro macaroni cheese or what have you and all of that kind of wove into how I ended up really being interested in the story of food and its history and it's after you know investigating it really as my persona right or my aware my being a people being aware of me grew i just got i just stayed curious more and more and more curious and it kept leading back to food history food history food history food history and that's that's how i was formed <laughs> staying curious it's it's an important thing and it, it keeps you um fresh it keeps the the juice is flowing, as we say, right? Yeah. Keeping that uh, yeah. that passion alive. Yeah. So I was going to say, so when you accepted the foodie job and you started in there, how did you find your your style as far as how did you, mm. you draw some of these interesting things out of the people you interviewed? And you've interviewed, I mean, all these people, I'm assuming, I don't even know this, but I'm assuming if I asked you, you'd probably rattle off 99% of them off the top of your head. You, you seem like you've got that kind of connection with all these people. I could probably remember a lot of them. Then all the chefs that I did for my Chef Talk video series, which is still out there. I mean, we did over 100 episodes, and that was intimate conversations mm -hmm. with chefs. And, you know, that was kind of in the vein of what I love about your podcast, where you don't talk about, like, what's your philosophy about food, though that's interesting. But it's more like how do you how do you keep your marriage together by the third restaurant and how do you keep your energy up and where do you find inspiration when you're running all this and how do you keep food costs mm -hmm. down while you still keep all of the flavors that you fell in love with when you first became a chef alive and you know that that's the stuff that I used to ask them um, but but back to your question um, I it took a little while to find my style and I'm really you know Christopher Kimball said this to me once and I, I completely nodded and agreed he said you know in our early days, we didn't really, nobody on PBS really watched us. And I was so glad because it took us a while to find our style and to find, for him to find his voice. And uh, he said, you know, for me to find my voice. So, and I nodded completely because for the first couple of seasons, we were just trying to figure out still what is the narrative style. I wasn't trying to figure that out, but I was trying to figure out, well, how do I, how do I uh, exactly connect to the subject matter and the people? And where I landed pretty efficiently, I would say, you know, after the first, maybe even the second season was uh, get out of the way of the story. These are amazing mm -hmm. people. These are amazing. Make them imminently comfortable. Ask them questions mm -hmm. that will get you answers that aren't direct answers, but talk about their story. 
and you'll get much, much, much better content, things, you know, their mm -hmm. story. I always saw myself, which is a difference now to how the show's going, but as the Greek chorus, not as a, it's not a personality-driven show. There's plenty of those, and Bourdain, I think Bourdain and Zimmern uh, really, you know, take the cake there. Um, and But we all, I mean, everybody just bows before Julia. Julia did it long before the rest of us. <laughs> In the 70s and 80s, with the power that she had, she started out and going to tell Wisconsin foodie-like stories across the country and really brought a lot of the the new wave, um, uh, what uh, uh, the name of the book is, uh, Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll by, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Anyway, uh, where he chronicles, you know, like that new that new wave of, of American chefs that were really stepping out and championing, championing our ingredients and new styles of cooking and the birth of California cuisine and that sort of thing. Anyway, um, Julia did it before anybody. But I didn't want to be a personality-driven show. I wanted it to be about the purveyors, the farmers, the bakers, the makers, the pickers, mm -hmm. the you know brewers, the distillers, the everybody. And so that was always my style was to, was to step back. Um, except when I felt, hey, the story will be served better here. Then anybody will tell you in production. I was just up in their face and like, <laughs> like we we got to do this. Um, but that's just pure enthusiasm for the for the job. Uh, and then, you know, in my other projects, it's really about supporting the environment that I'm in that's given so much to me, um, whether it's a, a straightforward public appearance at the state fair for, you know, state fair food or that kind of thing, or, or something a little bit more, um, a little bit more specific and speaking to, uh, a group of medical folks about how food influences health and how food truly is the original and still is the best medicine um, and kind of proselytizing that. Uh, that's where I found my voice or my style. Mm -hmm. Did you, uh, do you find that people from other parts of the country look at Wisconsin or maybe the Midwest and have this, you have a Midwest nice about you? Do, do people say that? I, people say that about me. They'll, I'll be around or something else. You have the Midwest nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that that is a, um, a poor characterization of, uh, I mean, I think it exists, but I don't think it's actually nice. I think it's um, really, really passive aggressive um, <laughs> and subtle. Uh, but I think we are decent people on the whole, and we are hardworking. And mm -hmm. the hardworking to get ahead but might undercut people maybe exists in other places in the country. You know, Michael White, who's a, a totally incredibly esteemed chef out in New York who grew up in Beloit, purposely hires people from the Midwest and specifically Wisconsin when they come to him because he understands that they understand a work ethic and an approach to life. And there's something to that. Um, what I experienced uh, through the years was the, the coasts, uh, the, the coasts, meaning the West Coast and the East Coast, where all the food media is for the most part, really don't understand the Midwest. I think in a way they're scared of it. Um, it's comfortable for them to rest back on things like Midwest nice and some of the other, uh, it's all farms and cows and that kind of shit, um, and not really appreciate what truly is going on here. Um, and I think it's just easier, you know, their offices are so close, so much closer to something that's going on in the, in the, um, in the Catskills than it is in, 
in the Driftless region or, or in central Iowa or what have you. And, or, you know, I mean, Missouri, for God's sake, Missouri wine literally saved French wine, literally saved it. But you won't find a food publication from the coast ever talking about that. Um, well, I think we need a little deeper dive on this because this, this oh, is Oh, yeah. So, yeah, no. So a blight, so a blight came through uh, European wine. The, uh, I'm not going to say the name right. It's a PH something. Um, primarily in France and just freaking decimated because it, was in, in, it wasn't a monocrop. There were different styles, but it, close to. And um, the, a lot of those vines had, been, had then also been planted in the Missouri um, River Valley. And uh, um, so cuttings from those vines were then essentially sent back to France to reestablish the wine mm. industry. And there's a statue somewhere in France to somebody of great renown. You know, I'm a little sketchy on this right now, but I mean, it's not that hard to Google. Um, there's statues on both sides in Missouri and France uh, commemorating the extraordinary lift extraordinary agricultural salvation that came out of Missouri. They were originally French vines that they were trying to grow in America, but it was almost like, hey, would you, they didn't know it, but they were creating their own little, you know, like international seed bank, right? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. For the, for the blight, not atomic war, because that hadn't been invented yet. But that, um, yeah. So, you know, that, that, that's just one micro example of the perspective that the coastal uh, media says, uh, or, I mean, excuse me, that the coastal media doesn't know about the Midwest. The benefit of that was that every time they came thing, excuse me, the benefit of that is every time they came through, and I mean Travel Channel, Eater, uh, History Channel, Food Network, Cooking Network, like I can't even, it's just, you know, like they would call me and say, uh, we don't know, you know, can you be on the show? Can you direct us? <laughs> can you, I mean, it's, you know, it's been nice work if you can get it uh, all these years. Um, so I've exec produced or been the expert on or what have you. I and mean, they just did a, um, history did a reboot of modern Marvels and they did cheese last year with, uh, the man mm -hmm. versus food guy. And they, they said, you know, we, he's the host and we're going to tour a factory, but we, we really need to actually know about the history of food. Can you meet us in Madison in the space that we've, we've, we got a COVID compliance officer and everything. Can you just meet us there and give us two hours about history of food? Yeah, sure. Totally. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that That's stuff cool. happens all the time because they, they don't know. They know they don't know, at least. Um, so I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed being uh, being a, I don't know what, hood ornament. Um, You're an expert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You are an the, expert. The Midwest. Yeah. And it's not just me. There's 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 others. But um, it's fallen to me, I think, because of. The TEDx talk and the show and the yeah. NPR radio work and the, you know, I mean, it's just sort of uh, NPR when when um, uh, when the U.S. DA was talking about outlawing any <laughs> cheese aging on wooden boards. Um, you know, I remember like doing an interview at like four in the morning so that they could make their broadcast. But uh, I was honored to be called because yeah. I, I knew these cheesemakers by name and said, like, you will decimate not only industries and income and farms but flavor like that that's on your that's on you that, that guilt is on you at <laughs> usda if you don't like delicious things and there may be an argument that you in fact don't but if yeah. you really don't then don't do this yeah. wow so what do you do 
when you're interviewing somebody and it, it's bound to happen at some point, um, I feel that when I talk with somebody, I, I really try to get an emotional connection there on some level. Mm -hmm. But when it's just not clicking, but you still have to push through and, and, and get results, what do you do to keep yourself in it and to, to pull out good responses from, from your guest when, when there's just not that, that normal connection that you have? Um, I do a couple of things. Um, sometimes I do the Richard Avedon trick, which was he would ask his subjects right before he took a picture of them, tell me about your dad, tell me about your mom. Um, sometimes, and a lot of times there's space for that. Sometimes I will say, uh, I, I don't really feel like you're that open to this, but is there, is there a better space? Is there a better time? Are there things on your mind? Do you, you know, cause it's just take the veil down and, and, and a mm. lot of times I've had people, and this is more when, when I've been filming, um, say, yeah, I really need to go, you know, check the whatever, or I, I've only got so much time, or, you know, this has got nothing to do with it. I said yes to you folks, but I got to pick up my kids and whatever. I'm like, great. I mean, that, okay, thank you. Let's, how do we figure this out then? So I get the fullest, um, best version of yourself. Um, uh, other times I've just said, you know, you, you seem distracted, you seem angry, you seem tired, you seem like, what, you know, is there something on your mind? Let me, let me just, you can, I, I don't worry and I won't take it personally. Um, and people have opened up, especially when there's cameras about, well, there's, you know, the crew is all over the place and they're walking or I'm really nervous on camera or that kind of thing. Then I, then I have more data, then I have more insight into them. And a lot of times I've been like, well, you know, okay, well, let's go get a coffee or why don't we sit down? Or I feel the same way too. Let me give you a couple examples. And what I do is this. Um, and then, you know, that really helped with someone who's like, really? You get, I'm like, oh, are you freaking kidding me? I mean, um, yeah, I feel the same way. Like, I did, it, you know, it's like, whatever. A couple first year, year and a half in the show, and Kohler grabbed me and said, hey, the person that's normally going to introduce Jacques Pepin is, can you do it? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, an American, no, a global cooking icon. And uh, I get to, you know, introduce him. Um, I'm a little nervous, you know, I'm a little nervous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was that like for me? Yeah. Um, yeah. Years later, though, I mean, we actually became, I don't want to say friends because I haven't seen him in years and he's moving towards retirement. But he, when he came through a lot more, we were acquaintances. And, and what was really cool is that I saw him at an event, a food event, and he remembered my name and I was like, this is awesome. And then mm -hmm. um, the story I love to tell from the James Beards and we were out there the year that two Wisconsin chefs were nominated for the Midwest Award. And one of them won. Um, and then the other one won the next year. But uh, was um, I was in the green room, so the room on the side of the stage from the Beards and just the champagne and foie gras and all the ridiculousness that you would imagine it is. All the wasteful craziness, which will change now. Um, <laughs> with mm -hmm. our updated culture and our wokeness. But at the time, it hadn't. Anyway, and Pepin came off the stage and he walked right up to me and he said, Kyle, I screwed up. I didn't go to rehearsal. I misread things in the teleprompter. I feel terrible. In essence, that's what he said. And I said, so he walks up to me in this crowded room of all these food people, right? Um, at Lincoln Center in New York. I said, chef, it's okay. Let's just go get a, a bottle, a glass of champagne, and I think probably people will understand and we can talk about it. And we turned to walk to the bar and the whole room parted. 
because it was Jacques Pepin and me, uh, not for me. But, you know, we got up there and I got him a glass of champagne and I'm like, I, I, I can die now. Like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. You can all kiss my butt. <laughs> um, so uh, that doesn't answer your question directly, but I think really just breaking it down, seeing, finding their humanity. And if you have to take a break, um, that's okay. And being mm-hmm. like really vulnerable, right? It's the, it's the Brene Brown thing. Like, be more vulnerable than they're expecting you to be and show them that this is, this is mm-hmm. just as, you know, can be just as challenging for you. And then you get the real person. Well, it's your personality. And, and you said it earlier about putting people at ease, making them feel mm-hmm. comfortable. You have that mm-hmm. ability, you, you, you know, the, everything in the, in the way you have a genuine caring for people comes through in the way you, you do that, those things. And, you know, you, you put your guests at ease. You, your interviews are always a lot of fun to watch because they are at ease and they do give you all that good information that they do when they're relaxed. Yeah, that's very kind. Uh, Well-deserved. I mean, love watching your show. Do you have any interviews through the years that you look back on and you go, boy, that one really taught me a lot or it really hit me with something a guest brought to the show or any mm. really memorable interviews? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Patrick O'Halloran with my chef talk series, uh, with an Italian restaurant in, um, in Madison. And it's not, it's not a, it's like a red sauce restaurant. It's, it's delicious, but it feed, they feed a lot of people. They, they, you know, it's not fancy pants. Right. Um, but it's beloved. And he's a chef that had, uh, helped found a concept in Madison old fashioned that a lot of people know, and many people in the state have gone to and, you know, his marriage fell apart and then he kind of has, he's been redeemed. He's been broken down and redeemed through food several times. And the, um, the candor and the understanding and also the knowledge base that was there was just like, wow. You know, I mean, I walked away going, I just, I want every young chef in America to watch this. I mean, just like, wow. And, um, He's one of those chefs that, you know, it's not, I mean, uh, food and wine's never, ever, ever going to profile him. Um, uh, and James Beards or whatever, you, like, they're never going to look at him. That's not what he's about. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a cook with chef instincts, a, a chef with cook's instincts. And uh, I still think back on some things that he taught me in that. And that episode got a myriad of chefs that you've had, some that you've even had on this podcast, in conversation about those same things and other aspects of their personal life and their craft and things like that really got them talking through social media. So um, mm-hmm. that's absolutely powerful. And then, you know, I go back to Jacques Pepin again. I mean, it was a uh, second season. He was coming through on a book tour. The Bartolotta brothers, God bless them, because Paul Bartolotta is so immensely respected nationally and internationally. Uh, Jacques made sure that he did a book event at one of the one of the Bartolotta's restaurants at Bacchus and uh, chef Adam Siegel is a favorite and a mentor of Jacques so that was no problem and and uh, but the event was chefs only it was a really small event and you had to be a chef to come to this luncheon essentially with Jacques 
So we're there with our cameras, and two really amazing things happen. One is Jacques Pen, like, how the F am I going to interview this guy? He's been asked every single question in the world 50 times about food, <laughs> and his family, and his wife, and France, and his history, and America, and Julia Child, and James Beard, and anybody else you want to think, and cooking, and teaching, and like, you know, what can you possibly... So in my deep, 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 deep research, because I, he's just a human being, too, or he is a human being, I realized that at one point he took a break from cooking, and he got his master's in French poetry. Now, I'm a recovered English major that majored in poetry, so I connected on a bunch of the poets, and I walked up to him before the filming, and I said, uh, Chef, we haven't met, did it. I want to introduce myself, this is what we'll be doing here, but completely off the food topic, um, who's a favorite, Verlaine or Mallarmé? And he just completely melted and changed. And he just, everything about him changed, and he was like, oh, that's so hard. And, you know, these were two French poets that he studied way more <laughs> deeply than I've ever read. But we could talk about that for just a minute or three. And it changed the entire day, the entire course of our interaction. Um, and then my, you know, I love later, though, when we were filming and I was going to be part of the lunch where the food was coming out. And he came up to me and he said, Kyle, you're a chef. And I said, no, I'm not. He's like, well, then you have to eat in the bar. <laughs> this is for chefs only. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> This is so Whoa. great. I've just been thrown out of a dining room by Jacques Pepin. You guys connect on, on such yeah, a level. Yeah. And then he has, he's, he's like, hey, the rules are the rules, bud. Yeah, You're right. out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love That's having you awesome. here, but you are not part of the tribe. And goodbye. <laughs> I'll see you on the other side. You know, hope you like the rules. are the rules. Um, yeah, rules are the rules. And uh, I just, yeah, those those awesome. would be two that, that, that really stand out. And then I guess the third would be... Um, interviewing uh, Sami Nasrat and um, you know we connected in the green room before and she's like just tell me about your day and I thought this is a real person because she's not like she's you know so ascendant and that sort of thing and I kind of know what this feels like but not on the level that she is experiencing now and at the speed she's experiencing it and then the interview that we had um, was real and pithy and uh, vulnerable and sad and funny and great and um i go back to that kind of availability uh when you're a rising public figure is really really rare yeah your guests over the years it's got to be a lot of fun to think back on them and yeah and, uh... yeah and they be, you know they become friends i mean uh, yeah. you just, you just, then you stay, you just stay in touch, you know? And, um, mm -hmm. I mean, COVID hit and, you know, so, I mean, was one of the, my first, uh, couple, maybe second week phone call. And I just said, how are you? You know, San Francisco's not good. How are you? And she's like, we're, it's cool. I got a little housing thing go with like, we're, I'm good. Thanks for calling. And we didn't have a long, but like, that's all like, that's just, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, we're all just trying to figure out how to do our thing and be true to our voice within this big thing we call food. And mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's a savage beast sometimes, and then other times it's incredibly tender and embracing. Um, but I think the right. people I've been mm -hmm. attracted to really, really honor its sacredness. Um, I mean, you hear, like you hear Bono from U2 talk about when they actually craft a song, when they actually get a groove that they like, and how they all believe it's such a sacred thing. It's almost like you should take your shoes off before it, you know? And, and that's how I feel about cooking and cuisine. 
Like it's it's a very sacred, precious thing, um, and we've turned it into something else uh, over these years, and we've still preserved a lot of it too. But um, I, yeah, that's how I think of it. Well, if, if we realize it or not, it still carries those very sacred moments with us. We just mm -hmm. don't appreciate them in the same consciousness of maybe that way. We just we go through them and we, we, we reap the benefits of it, so to speak, but we yeah, uh, maybe don't realize what's going on as consciously as we once did. Yeah. yeah, well, that's what happens when you commercialize something to the level that we have with food. Right. It strips it of a lot of its identity, its personality, its traits that, that it once grew from. Yeah, so it's... And, and, I mean, I, I'm all for feeding lots of people with great industry and that kind of thing. Like, I don't want to vilify the... You know, I love soft serve, right? You know? Like, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's bad in any way, straight, shape, or form, um, but it has a place among all that. Um, I yeah. love cheap sheet cake and light beer. At least I used to when I still drank, right? Those are crazy, that's a great combination. You know, frozen Snickers and crappy <laughs> coffee. Like, those are amazing, you know? Um, those are flavor memories, too. But, like, not all the time not too much yeah. right you know not right yeah you know like michael pollan talks about the just the destitution uh of of microwaving four different meals for four different people so you can have dinner like you know just that hollow <laughs> yellow light going while the thing rotates and then everyone's sitting down kind of at different times um yeah. there's something really 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 sacred about the the, the thrown together um, modest, lovely meal that everybody sits down and then is nourished at the same time. I, I, you know, there's we're 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 try, try designed people, right? We have an experience with ourselves, we have an experience with others, we relate, and then we have an experience with the greater world, whether you want to call that God or you know nature or whatever. But there's something that happens in mirroring psychologically when we eat together, and I think it's the same in the same box as when we go to a sporting event that we're all together on, or we go to a concert or we go to a, like whatever mm -hmm. it is. Um, you know, I mean, probably how, why the military works when you're all in it together, right? There's something that happens. And when we sit down and we eat together, we break bread, there's some mirroring that happens. And, and, uh, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just for more of that. That's all I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you see any of this, the result of uh, what we've just gone through as a, as a world, as a nation. Do you think uh, when people ate in their meals at home more, are we are we getting a, a, a little bit more of a connection back to that family gathering and eating together, or do you think that's short-lived? What do you see as the, the, the future, the history of um, mm -hmm. where we mm -hmm. are today and, and as a result of what, what's happened? Well, I, I hope. So I've got a couple theories on this, but I, I hope... I'll share some outcomes. First of all, food is fashion in America. Always has been um, from the Fannie Farmer cookbook and telling us how to eat uh, and how ladies should be cooking and what the, you know, the aspirational upper crust Eastern Europe, Eastern American, um, East Coast American family should be eating uh, all the way through, you know, Julia coming in 1961 and, and Craig, Craig Claiborne in his first reviews and and then his cookbooks and how America, you know, I mean, in 1962 and, um, and uh, David Camp wrote a beautiful book about all of this called the, the United States of Arugula and how we became a gourmet nation along the way. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, and then really how that, you know, a lot of those things um, uh, became class anxiety centered around American food 
Um, there's a great book by a, by a woman by the name of uh, S. Margaret Finn that I, that I just read that, that centers on that. Um, but it, you know, food is very much fashion. Uh, I think what this um, whole COVID thing will hopefully yield is that we'll, in a different way, understand our relationship to comfort food, whereas it used to be something that was kind of a, um, you know, there was the highly processed version of comfort food, and then there was the uh, middle class to upper middle class experience of going out and getting comfort food. And it just kind of, you know, the, the, the deep dish pizza and the, the tater tots and the, the rustic whatever and the bacon, and it just got more and more and more and more. I hope that we re-examine our experience with comfort food. I hope that many people have re-explored and understood home cooking. And I hope that the restaurant industry goes through the massive update from its medieval draconian approach to paying people, a really Machiavellian approach to paying people that um, is, is, is so in, in need of an update and, and in many areas it is. And so I th hope we come out of this with a different ethos about what comfort food is and does for our bodies and when we should seek it, about what being together around the table means in a new way, and then about seeing people, really seeing them when they come over and clear our plate or bring our plate or say, um, hi, welcome to the restaurant as we walk up to them or clear our dishes or whatever and that whole experience. There's, um, there's a, it's gonna wax a little poetic, but we, or I guess sentimental, but when we say a prayer as a family, we're not a big religious family, but we sit down to a meal, we say, um, we are grateful for this food and for the hearts that made it. And uh, the point of all that for us and for our kids is that there's this immense supply chain, <laughs> right? To bring it back to economics uh, and that sort of, um, put it in that kind of bucket. Uh, there's this immense supply chain of human souls that did so many things to bring this meal to our table, whether it's a restaurant or a food cart or you know what have you. So I hope that the American paradigm is updated through that as well. Um, whether it will be or not, I mean, dude, I'm just not in that business. <laughs> Prognosticate, I'm just not. I'm not gonna hang my butt out there <laughs> too far. <laughs> no, that's all right. Yeah, uh, that's it. I like that, and and, the, and to the hearts that made it, I like that because you're right. There's so many people that put so much into it, and so much. The farmer, the I mean, just the whole supply chain leading up to you getting the opportunity to experience that meal is is pretty yeah. cool. Giving I mean, Justin, that, right? Justin uh, Carlisle, your other guest probably touched on this relative to beef and dairy, but you know, um, if you, one thing I'd love to do is just wave my hand and all the undocumented folks that are working in this country in food service, just like have a month off and you'll be safe and paid and, and you know, you won't die and that kind of thing. You just don't have to go to work. And for America to see that like there'd be no wine, there'd be no Christmas trees, there'd be no green vegetables, mm. there'd be red, orange, yellow, any color vegetable, or very little. There, um, uh, there are very few clean plates. Um, the dairy industry would be decimated. Uh, and just to, you know, as an example, I'd love to just show America how, how connected we are to people that aren't even citizens in our foodways. Um, and uh, so, you know, what am I hoping will come out of this pandemic? I'm hoping adjustments around immigration and, and the dreamers and those sorts of things 
will really, really, really come forward. We can't solve it all with the sweep of a hand, but our food system is so dependent upon people that are not seen, let's put it that way, from the dishwasher in the back that's only making 10 an hour, where the server is making cumulatively uh, 48 because of the tips. Um, you know, that needs to be addressed, right? Uh, and the undocumented man or woman that is basically birthing cows in a big dairy uh, situation, like, you know, all day, that's what they do. And they're really, really, really good at it. And they're tender and loving yeah. and great and, and would love to pay their taxes. And, would, you know, I mean, they don't want anything more. They don't even want to change jobs, which I don't want that job. I mean, it's brutal work. Um, I want to see mm. them. I want them to be part of our society because they're part of our food system. And our food system is our society. So I just I just wanted to flow ACDC. Yeah. You know, one thing that I, I do find striking about your career is that you were able to make a career out of food without being a chef or being directly in the food service industry. You you did that before YouTube was popular and before Twitter and Facebook and uh, TikTok and you know, basically before you didn't have to be a chef. To be a chef, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what was it like? Because that's kind of there weren't a lot of people doing that. <laughs> have you, what gave you the confidence to say, like, you know, I, yeah, I belong here. Have you ever smuggled anything into a country or out of a country because you forgot it was in your luggage? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's exactly the same uh, energy that I had. I didn't know that I didn't belong. <laughs> It's like Brilliant. it's like putting that it. amazing charcuterie in your luggage and like, oh, yeah, I'm going to pull that out and I'm declared customs and I hope they let me go. And then you just you just forgot and you got through, you know, yeah. or whatever, whatever it is. That's exactly I didn't know that I didn't belong. And there uh. were the more years that I went on, people started to refer to me. They would say chef or they would they would assume I was a chef. And I spent not a ton, but a fair amount of energy, um, you know, from time to time irregularly uh, just correcting people say I'm not a chef. I just, so, you know, I am not a chef and they were almost always like, really, <laughs> you know, like, how did you get into this party? <laughs> that sort of thing. Well, like this yeah. is go sit only... in the other room. You can't yeah. eat with us. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but I mean, aren't you really, aren't you really a chef? I mean, a chef is kind of a self-declared title, kind of like no, maestro or, you no, know, it's like, no, no. I mean, there are chef taught chefs or, and then there are those that have gone through the education I have not paid my dues in any way, shape, or form on that, um, on that uh, uh, journeyman um, path. So I would never, I have such a massive respect for chefs. And here's why. There's very few professions left, including everything that you and I do, where we, we, we can't, we can fake it. Put it this way. Let me put it in the other way a chef, an undertaker, a tool and die maker. Like there's just a few, you know, ways of making a living left these days where your bullshit has to walk as soon as you get in the door. If yeah. you walk mm -hmm. into a kitchen and you say, I'm a chef and I've cooked at these places, that means nothing more than you say you're a chef and you've cooked at these places. And within 15 minutes, everybody in that kitchen is going to know your level of capability, your emotional intelligence, and your aptitude. And I adore the authenticity of the chef craft because you cannot fake it. And even in the most industrialized aspects of it, 
there is still some heart and soul that has to be there because it's food. And there's, there's very few industries, careers left like that. Um, and I am not that person. I mean, I, I, I can't do what chefs do and I'm in awe. Uh, and even the ones that are doing, you know, like huge commissary cooking for lots of people or whatever, where it's very much like, I'm still in awe. I'm still in awe. So um, to answer your question, I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to be there. And by the time I, I, I got there and people put like, I was too late, you know, like, <laughs> I've done too much stuff. You guys, you guys can't get rid of me. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. That's a, You know what? That's a great well, question that no one has ever, ever asked me before. Really? Wow. Uh, that That's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, I'm just going to call it a day here. You can, you can wrap this one up on your own. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Kyle, before we let you go, one of the things we always like to ask our guests is at some point in your career, your life, um, you've had someone say something to you as a quote or some inspirational thing you've, you've lived by uh, that really inspires you or drives you. Um, I would, yeah, I mean, I do. I would go back to, um, to Jacques again, which I, he didn't say it directly to me, but I, I mean, yeah, I, I asked the interview question and then he, he answered it and it was used as, as voiceover during that episode where he was at Bacchus and, and we both connected in French poetry and then he threw me out of the dining room. Um, but he, <laughs> he, he was speaking about young chefs, but I think he was speaking about the human experience and he was saying, you, he said in, in, in so many words, and I, I probably paraphrase it, but you can't escape from yourself. So you may as well cook from your heart because you you'll come like you can't escape from yourself you'll come back to it it'll it'll keep pushing you making your life difficult creating situations that that are hard for you until you learn and then you find your voice in cooking and he was he was speaking about chefs but i think that's well i don't think i know that's immensely true in my life whenever i've tried to do the thing that my ego, my will, my, you know, whatever thought was the, the right way, the, the knee jerk way, the, the damn it, this is going to be the way. Um, life has thrown up all kinds of um, <laughs> roadblocks and distraction, like just all sorts of stuff <laughs> that, that kept me curving back and learning until I got to something that was, was truly me. And, um, there are many, many times in instances outs, way outside of food and media that uh, that line from Jacques has echoed in my head. You can't escape yourself. So you may as well cultivate mm -hmm. it and, and, and lean into it, pursue it. Very good. Wow. Well, thank you. And thanks again for everything today. It's been a, a real pleasure. And I, I can tell you all those calls you receive in those 4 a.m. interviews, uh, all very well deserved. You're, you certainly um, you're a great source of information and just fun to talk to. It's, it's really a pleasure talking with you. And thanks again for the time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for asking, guys. So I'm just, I'm, the honor's all mine. Well, Justin, we get off these calls and we always say, what a, what a great uh, podcast, but what a great podcast, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. That was one that could have gone for a couple more hours easily. Yeah. And I had a lot more questions, but I could have just sat back and listened to him talk the whole time, too. Yep, yep. And as, as you know, when we sit and listen to him, it's fun just to, to listen and, um, you know, knowing that we have Nate 
up now to give us a, a recap of it because Nietzsche's got a great way of kind of bringing all the thoughts and things together and kind yeah. of bringing them back uh, in summary. So uh, it's nice for us that we just get to enjoy and listen and talk to our mm-hmm. guests. So Nate, uh, not only is he in our marketing department, but um, he's with us here today as uh, our recap. So Nate's recap. Nate, take it away. Well, thank you very much, Rich. I appreciate it. The one thing that I always get, and I've had the chance to interact with Kyle a few times since I've been here at Volrath, every time you speak with him, it's like you're talking to a friend. He just mm-hmm. has such a way with people and just makes you feel welcome and comforted. And And what he really does a good job of is he takes fine food and he makes it really approachable. He takes some of the, mm-hmm. he takes a lot of the snobbiness out of it. It makes you feel like as an average person, if you're willing to learn, you can really learn to enjoy excellent food and and the the quote-unquote finer things you know and it's really nice to have someone who is willing to be that bridge for so many people in so many ways to make food more approachable the other thing i really enjoyed about um his feedback or just his stories and his perspective overall on food was was he mentioned when he and his family say their prayer before a meal that they thank the the people who made it as well the hearts the hands the souls that created that food and that's an outlook that I, I almost feel we take for granted in our country because we're so th- we're so spoiled and blessed with food being a thing that while a lot of people have to consider it and it is a struggle for them, the vast majority of our country is in a position to take it for granted. And unfortunately, we do. And it was really nice to hear his perspective on knowing the supply chain of people that have that make even the simplest product come to be and, and being appreciative of that. I think that's a lesson we can all learn from. For sure. Very good. Once again, Nate, great summary. And, and you're, you're so right. Just about talking to him is so easy. Uh, that, that's what makes it fun. Like Justin and I, when we're in those conversations, it's just fun and easy to talk to. So thanks again for your recap. You have just a great way for uh, to bring it all together. So thank you for that. Justin, from you, anything to close out the show today? Absolutely. I would like to remind everyone to please, please hit that subscribe button so you never miss another conversation like what we just had with Kyle. There's so many great moments that happen here on the feed. And if you just take a second to ring that little bell, it'll keep you up to date on whenever we drop a new episode. Yeah, just reach out to us at valrathfoodservice.com, the feed. And everyone, if you do everything as if a customer were watching you, you'd know you'd be doing it right. That's always a quote I, I like to hear and listen to uh, from my dad. So great way to for me to end the show. And thank everyone today. Please um, have a great week ahead. Until next time, take care. <laughs>